If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear, check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm Michael Beek, and I'm talking to you from a very special studio in a, a corner of Glyndebourne. Now, for those who aren't familiar with Glyndebourne, it's a gorgeous venue in the southeast of England with an opera house and gardens. But alas, I'm not here to see an opera, but I am here to speak to an opera star and the owner of this fabulous studio, Danielle Denise, who's sitting next to me. Hello, Danielle. Hi, Michael. It's lovely to have you down. Oh, it's thank you for having me. Let's start with this room, your studio. How much time do you spend in here or will you? Because I know you're still sort of setting it up and getting it as you want it. Yeah, yeah, I am still setting it up. But the studio is a workspace. It's a place where I come to rehearse. It's a place where I come to sing, where I can be away from all ears, as it were, because Glyndebourne is a place that we share with everybody, including our home, which Mm -hmm. has all of the creatives from the different operas that we put on we put on six every year so we have those teams living in the house with us in the summer it's a very artistic hive of activity and of ideas and but I would never dream of sort of imposing my singing voice onto all of the residents of the house so this studio is just attached to the house on this on the side here Mm -hmm. that looks out onto our private garden which is in the front of the house which means I will not disturb anybody with my singing so I do come here to do lots of rehearsals Glyndebourne use it for filming sometimes and and whenever there's an overflow they need a practice room they'll pop in here with my blessing so it's lovely it's got a lot of history a lot of history to this place and now the studio has a lot of my history Mm. because as I was mentioning I moved a lot of the work that I've done that's put up on in press articles and in photography and and posters uh, from my parents' house over to to Glenbourne in the pandemic, and it's a it's a whole story. It's here. lovely. So for the listener, we're surrounded by your your sort of career. Yeah, from <laughs> posters, childhood upwards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Posters and press cuttings, and like you say, you didn't frame them. Your parents did. My parents had framed so them over lovely. the years, and all I did was just get hammer and nails and hang them up. <laughs> and yeah, no, it's a beautiful way to look at one's life and one's work mm-hmm. and one's journey, which is. Um, quite epic for me in the sense that I started singing classically from the age of eight. So I was very unusual that I took these voice lessons that my parents found a teacher who would teach me and then decided at that age that opera was the thing I wanted to do as my main dream. Wow. 
It's a young age, isn't it? It's so a to totally think young age. What was it? What was the spark? What was the thing that sort of got you thinking? Do you know what? This is what I want to do. Well, I had started with song and dance at the mm. age of five or six. You know, your parents put you into all kinds of classes to see what you're good at. And um, I really took to the singing and dancing. And I was, I think I was a kind of that sort of toddler that I now see in my little girl that's sort of carrying on around the kitchen, singing, dancing, and constantly moving, constantly <laughs> performing. So I think that's why my parents exposed me to that kind of, you know, arts exposure really. And it became very clear in those first few years that the teachers were very excited about my talent or they would talk to my parents and say, she's in the front of the concert for this, or she's leading the troupe for that, yep. or we've put her in the adult dance classes because she's very good. And at this time, my parents thought we should get her a voice teacher to train her so that she's not just relying on instinct, but actually has a sense of technique and has a sense of what she's doing. And it did take a long time for my parents to find me a voice teacher that would take on an eight-year-old to train <laughs> classically. It was absolutely unheard of. It probably still is. But they did find a lady in Australia, which is where I'm born, mm. called Amanda Colliver. And she said, I'll take her. I'll, I'll, I'll teach her. And I started to sing Bach and Haydn and the Vakai scales and the Viardot exercises. And, you know, really great foundation for, for such a young age. But I definitely became aware, though I may not have articulated it in this way when I was eight, mm. I was aware that all of my friends could sing and dance and act, but that none of them could take this up. Interesting. And it felt okay. like a very natural way of producing my voice. I didn't have to put on a voice, mm. even though I was doing musical theater and pop music at the time. Yeah. It just felt like the most natural thing in the world to me to sing in this way. And I think that I thought, okay, this is special. This is unusual and no one else can do this. And so this is what I want to do. And I, the way that I articulated it at the time was I drew a picture of a stage with big billowing curtains and only one little girl in the middle of it with a big poofy dress on with the <laughs> poofy shoulders and all that. And I said, mom, that, you know, this is what I want to do. And I'm so fortunate, Michael, that I had parents who took that impetus and said, okay, let's run with it. If you want to do this, we will give you every opportunity to get the best training, to get you the best teachers, to expose you to all the different kinds of disciplines, be it singing, dancing, acting, body technique, Alexander technique, Feldenkrais. Mm -hmm. I did everything as a young teenager as well, developing in Los Angeles. And all of those things have shaped me into the artist that I am today. Literally every single thing that I have had studied, even from that very, very young age, I draw upon at some point in my life and I think, isn't that interesting how a, a masterclass I did once when I was 14 has come in handy now sure. in this way, in this role, in this scene. Mm. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. It is, it it's is. a beautiful thing to realize. Yeah, lovely, lovely stuff. And so do you think that starting to love opera young is an important thing or, or can people embrace it at any age? I think you can definitely embrace opera at any age. And I don't think that every single young person will like opera, nor will every single older person mm. like opera. Sure. But I think what's really important is to have a wide and varied experience with lots of different types of music. Mm. I don't think we live in a funnel anymore where you have to pick a type of music that you enjoy. And we live in a world now where you can have very varied playlists on Spotify that really expose you to lots of different things. And, and, and quite often on Spotify, you're exposed to something you've never heard before just because you chose to 
chillax or something, sure. you know? And then suddenly you're hearing something and you go, what is that? I don't realize as you're soon, actually Yeah, as soon as I hear something that's different to me, I think, oh, I have got to purchase that and I run, mm. I go and I buy that piece of music because I have no boundaries when it comes to enjoying the work of other artists. Sure. So I have had many, many letters from fans or people or friends or colleagues who maybe don't know me having seen me perform, but know me from a different context. And they say, you don't believe this. You popped up on my Spotify. And um, <laughs> I went, whose voice is this? And I, I looked and discovered it was yours. That's so, funny. you know, there are lots of different ways in, but I definitely have great, great value for going to experience a theatrical opera live. Okay. I think the magic of a live performance can really touch you in an unexpected way. It can transform you because it's so unexpected. Sure. There are lots of people who come to the opera for the first time with preconceived ideas mm -hmm. of what they might not understand about it. Sure. I think most people agree that it's amazing and that they that most people will say, oh, it's, it's just so wonderful. And I know the people who do it, they have to train for years and years to become great. So there's a recognition that opera and classical training is like sports in the sense that, you know, you have to dedicate yourself for many years yep. to it to be able to get to the Olympic level, mm -hmm. as it were. But then there are other hurdles that people perceive, I think, which aren't necessarily based in the full reality of what opera or classical performance is today, but are somewhat based in a cliche or an impression that was given totally. in some very distant way. It could even be from a cartoon. Mm, perhaps. You know, the Viking. Or they yeah. think, oh, it's in a foreign language. Would I understand it? Exactly. I don't know if I would understand it. Is it whereas, going to be whereas somebody whereas in a big had... wig and a big dress? Totally. And, 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 and you know, those those come from somewhere, yeah. but they're not necessarily reflective of what opera is today. Mm. I think we have a much more dynamic theatrical experience in opera. And there are all different types of ways in which the voice can move you. So there will be some people in opera where it's just about the voice and we won't need to hear that voice in the house. There are other much more dynamic performers who give an all-rounder performance. So you hear the voice, you see the acting, you see the, the interpretation of the character and you can really get engrossed in the drama of it and find yourself incredibly moved as well. Mm. The most unique thing I think about a classical performance is that it's probably the last unamplified transmitting of a raw human voice. I mean, we see so many theatrical, musical, cinematic experiences through a box, through a microphone, through a, through an amplification system. Sure. Festivals, for example, are the mm -hmm. same. And if you see a pop concert, which I've seen many, they're all amplified yeah. to us. Anything at the O2, um, even a comedy artist, mm -hmm. you know, doing something at the O2, yeah. you're going to have it through a mic. And then you have opera, this last completely unamplified experience. I think that's the thing that most people who try opera for the first time, they're not really ready for what that does to you. I bet. And it really can take you by surprise mm. and it can kind of hit you in the chest. It, it is really quite something to be in a huge theater and realize that the voice that you're hearing is the raw human voice. It can really penetrate you 
to the deepest levels of your soul. Mm. And it can be very moving. Yeah. And most of the people that I've invited to the opera who've never come before, they come away having had a transformative experience and almost like an awakening because it's just something they were not expecting to be moved by or not expecting to come at them the way that they had perceived it to be before. We had some fantastic performances at the Royal Opera House for the NHS during the pandemic. There was a couple of performances that were purely dedicated to NHS workers, you know, and Glyndebourne also did some some NHS-orientated performances. And it was really amazing to see that there was there were huge swaths of the public who are so busy in their own lives, they've never had the opportunity to come to an opera, but they've always wanted to. Sure. You know, for some people, opera is like the hot air balloon experience where I might say, <laughs> yes. you know, I've always wanted to go in a hot air balloon. I've just never gotten around yeah, yeah, yeah. to it. It's amazing that when they do get around to it, they sort of, it's a magical experience. It really yeah. can be, when you see a fabulously staged opera, you're not only hearing voices, you're not only impressed by the sheer size of that, but you're also seeing 60 to 70 instrumental musicians playing in the raw. Mm. You're seeing design teams, technical teams, lighting, a huge chorus on stage in some pieces. The sheer amount of collaborators that go into making an opera is phenomenally big. And I think that's also one of the reasons why opera is expensive to put on. It is sure. more expensive because it's not a one-man show. Mm. It's not a two-man show. Mm -hmm. And it's you know not even a 20-man show. It's a much, much bigger yeah. team that go towards bringing this one exactly. singular experience. You're seeing the work of a lot of different creative people. Yeah, and so, best. yeah, people come into the opera not necessarily only interested in the voices. Some people come to see an incredible director's work or they come to see, you know, for example, the Rake's Progress at Glyndebourne is designed by David Hockney. And I mean, yeah, people wow. have come from far and wide, not only for the music, but to see David's work and how he transforms opera. And what you're saying about that sort of emotional reaction, I mean, the same can be said for sitting in front of a symphony orchestra, can't it, for the first time. Oh, and there's a goodness. similar sort of, you know, you, you see the word classical and you, you, you come with a preconceived idea of what it is, but an opera is the same. But opera can be so many different things, can't it? Yeah, I mean, opera can be, I mean, in, in the same way that instrumental music can be, you know, you can have the Bruckner symphonies and you can have the Beethovens and be, you know, be you know, or Wagner and be impressed with like the sheer amount of yeah. numbers creating that level of sound. But then you can have also these very intimate pieces. Mm. You can have chamber music pieces done with just a string quartet and you can have an opera. Some of the Monteverdi operas are very sparse in their instrumentation. And this is another thing that I think is really interesting about first time experiences with opera because it's a little bit like trying to compare Japanese food an Indian food, sure, an American food. You can't really compare them on the same palette. You can compare their level of excellence, mm. but you can't truly make a comparison because the palette color is so different. Yeah. And there are people who come and try handle for the first time, for example, and they say, oh my God, that's what I like in opera. And I want to hear that. And they might come and hear a Stravinsky opera or... Wagner and say, I'm, I'm not really into that. I like the handle. I mm. like the tunes. Mm -hmm. I like the melodies. I like the reprises. Sure. And they might, that might appeal to them. And on the other side, there are people who might come and see La Boheme for the first time, for example, and then say, 
that's grand opera. That's what I want to hear. That gorgeous, lush sound. Sure. And maybe they won't like Handel. They mm-hmm. won't maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe they won't like Mozart operas. And so there's something for everybody. Say, there must be an opera for everyone, isn't there? There is, and you know, there are certain operas I I really do recommend to try first. Sure. Or, you know, I will say try this if you're coming, mm-hmm. or potentially a production that I know is a hit. So then I say, you know, this is going to be the one to come and see this year because that I know for first timers will be the one, the mm. one to really feast your eyes and ears Knock upon. Mm. Totally. It's you, important that we do have a first experience that knocks your socks off. Sure. I mean, I might go to an art gallery and if I see something I don't like, it might, it might make me less inclined to go back. Mm. So one thing, though, that I would say when it comes to opera or art or ballet is that because there are different colors in the palette, don't take that first experience and necessarily say that that is what opera is as a whole or art is as a whole. Oh. Try again. Try from a different angle and see if something else appeals. And you will find something yeah. that moves you. Mm. Um, you talked a little bit about the language barrier in, in some operas, because not all operas are in a different language. You know, we, obviously, we're not talking just about English people here, yeah. but we are in England. So let's say, is it good for somebody to go and see an opera for the first time in their own language because they might understand it better? Or do you think it just doesn't matter? Is it more about just that emotional connection? Yeah, I, I do think that language is not a factor for me. Mm. Because in opera, we have surtitles. So we have a title there. Either either it's going to be right in front of your seat, right on the seat on the seat back of the person in front of you. You'll have a screen there. Or it's going to be on a surtitle above or on the side of the stage. So you know, third titles to me are a gateway into the story. They're a gateway into the expressions that are being conveyed by the singer. And you'll notice sometimes in opera that you will sing about something, hear the person singing and see one or two lines expressing what it's about. And then it'll go blank for a while while the person sings the same music. And that's because the person is expanding on their emotional state. And that allows you, by not just having the same words repeated and repeated, it allows you to live with the emotion of what somebody's feeling rather than to read the words I of what see. they're feeling. It's like a residual sort of... Yeah, you get to just sort of... And it's exactly what we do in life. Sometimes we want to just go and sit on a bench somewhere and live with our thoughts for mm-hmm. a bit. We might write one or two things down or we might write nothing at all. Yeah. And, you know, that I find that quite magical, those moments when you do suspend your storytelling. And opera does that. We have parts of opera that move the story forward and parts where then a person just stops to sing one whole song about just feeling sad or mm. feeling dumped, broken up with, or feeling like they want to betray somebody or feeling betrayed. Sure. Um, so they then sing about the emotions that they're experiencing. And that's why some of the opera arias, they're longer in their duration than the parts that move the story forward. The other thing I think that's really surprising for most people who come to the opera for the first time is they know much more opera than they think they know. Yes. The amount of times people have come to see, for example, The Barber of Seville and then gone, I actually knew three songs from that (laughs) opera. I had no idea they came from The Barber of Seville. There is so much classical music that permeates our cultural zeitgeist in any given time period. Um, Be it from a fantastic film like Shawshank Redemption, which mm-hmm. has the Mozart's letter duet, or be it a car commercial that has, you know, Omio Babino Caro from sure. Puccini's Gianni Schicchi. I mean, there are so many moments where we experience themes from opera and we have, you know, maybe not the context to realize that that's where it comes mm. from. That's a wonderful way to sort of 
pull you in to something when was, you realize you have more familiarity with it than you think. I was going to say, is that a good reverse way of doing it then? So if, you, if, if a listener can find out where that thing they love is from, they then go and see it. And Absolutely. And broader experience. Yeah, and I mean, now we live in this age where if you hear something you like, you can sort of shazam it. Yeah, and you can exactly. go, what is that? Or, and then yeah. the app will tell you, oh, that's actually Beethoven's Ninth. Mm-hmm. Those kind of moments, they, they can be a little seedling that goes in and you think, God, one time in my life, I'd like to go and hear the Beethoven Nine live. Yeah. What would that be like? And I can promise you that I don't know a single person who's gone to a live acoustic performance of classical music, be it symphonic or opera or recital or concert, who hasn't been completely blown away by the live version of it. So sure. there's never disappointment when it mm. comes to that. Sometimes if you have your favorite song, pop song, and then you go to see the person live, you could be disappointed <laughs> if their live rendition of it is not yes, as Yes, if it's not the same as the version you as love. As the studio mix uh-huh. version where there's lots of tools to make it, yep. you know, auto-tune or whatever it may be. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely had experiences like that at music festivals yep. where I've gone to see a live act and I thought, oh, that sounds very different than the yeah. version I've got. They just do a different arrangement maybe for the for the live concert. Possibly, think, oh, or that's, the you know, that perhaps they're, you know, having a bad day or whatever. <laughs> yes, of course. You know, the, the studio mixed sound is very different, whereas opera is very rarely given a sort of major edit job on a recording to sound impossibly better than the live version. So sure. if you do hear someone sing live, they generally sing as well as they sound on record. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really have never experienced a disappointment where I've gone in and then said, well, actually, no, I don't like that as much as I like my recording. <laughs> so you're kind of guaranteed to get bang for your buck yeah, if ex- you try it. Exactly. What about musicals? Is that is that a way in for people who like who like a Western musical? Because you've just done Aspects of Love. I fabulously. have, yeah. What is that? I mean, what, what are the, is there a correlation between the two? Are they that different? Well, I don't think that musicals and opera are very different at all. And my, I've been asked a lot during Aspects of Love whether mm. my approach is different. And I think people are generally surprised to discover that my approach between opera and musicals is the same. The craftsmanship level is the same. The amount of fine-tuning I do to my character, you know, kind of sculpting away at the different small corners of a character's nuances and sure. and really being able to make sure that I tell that story in the same level of investment that I would as a, in, in a longer operatic character. It's mm-hmm. exactly the same. It's yeah. exactly the same. The main difference really is the miking. So I would say that there are a lot of people who will have come to have seen me in Aspects of Love that are probably going to come and see me in a classical performance. Having connected with me as an artist, I think, you know, at least I've been told by them that they're going to absolutely come to the next thing I'm doing. And because I sit across various genres, Mm. that's very exciting for me. I'm always pushing to get more new audiences and younger audiences and different audiences interested in coming to try out an operatic performance or a classical performance um, or an operetta performance. So Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about that because I don't see a difference. And I think that sometimes an interesting artist can make you interested in trying something new that they're up to, that they're doing. So that's one gateway in. Mm. And another way could be, for example, if you were to see a West End show about Marilyn Monroe, let's say, Mm -hmm. and then they said, well, actually, they're also doing Marilyn Monroe, the opera. Sure. That could pique people's interests, right? So we had that, for example, with Royal Opera House. They did Anna Nicole, the opera, which was based on, I guess you could call her a reality star, but she was a model-turned reality TV 
star called Anna Nicole Smith and um, had a very tragic story. It was a it was a Hollywood story, like a, a tragedy of Hollywood type story, yeah. which then got an operatic treatment. And that, because of the subject matter alone, will have brought in a different kind of swath of audience that might so, have been curious to see how that story is depicted in operatic form. Mm-hmm. That's Quite happened. heightened opera, you know. Yeah, it is, and I guess this, a similar thing happened like with Rent, wasn't it? Because that's sort of a take Maybe. on La Boheme. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. a it's a, it's the same kind of you know story characters, but just delivered and pre- presented in a slightly different way. Yeah, I and mean, I've absolutely told people if I've had to sum up Boheme in a quick thing to somebody who doesn't know opera, I say, "Well, the Rent, that's Boheme." <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so. And there are lots of musicals that are loosely based on an operatic form, mm-hmm. Miss Saigon and Madame Butterfly. Sure. They're similar in their storyline, mm-hmm. basically. So I think they're a lot closer than people imagine. Yeah. And I've certainly seen through Aspects of Love a lot of opera world audiences coming in to see that, possibly due to me being in it. I was going to ask, is there a reverse sort of people Completely. coming into the West End? Absolutely. And I think that's really necessary. I think that, and, and opera audiences who've come, some have said, oh, we've been long-term fans of Andrew Lloyd Webber or long-term fans of the West End. And others have said, I, I wasn't, but I came to see you. And actually, wow, I really liked that piece. It was oh, not what I expected. Because there are a few sort of, you know, in inverted commas, musicals that the classical would have sort of embraced, like West Side Story yeah. and, and, and like maybe Sweeney Todd, which Absolutely. I saw a WNO yeah. production of Sweeney Todd. I mean, oh, it's really? just like, you know, so they've sort of taken a few, but there seems to be a slight barrier to what we might call the slightly more glossy sort of populist musicals. Sure, yeah. And I mean, like musicals have also changed in their color mm. since the Rodgers and Hammerstein and that, sure. you know, that age where there was a lot more orchestration. Mm-hmm. You know, musicals have a much smaller orchestra in the pit, so yep. they have to provide a lot more color with a lot less instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Mainstream pop music has had an influence on musical theater. If we look at how lyrical musicals are from the Rodgers and Hammerstein time to, I don't know, the Book of Mormon, Mm -hmm. there's a different type of idiom that we're using in musicals now that we don't, we didn't have before. So that's normal in the same way that we might say, well, a Burt Whistler and Adams piece or a Brett Dean piece has a different color landscape, uh, soundscape, Mm -hmm. as it Mm -hmm. were, than Mozart. So it's a natural thing that that music must progress and must... Evolution, isn't it? Yeah, that it must evolve. Mm. But that's exciting. It's exciting. I think that's really exciting to, you know, I want to hear new music as yeah. in musicals as much as I want to hear Kiss Me Kate. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And will you do more musicals? Is that you want to do more? I mean, I would you... love to. I would love to see what projects come up that mm. can use my different skill sets. And I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate. It's funny because we're kind of coming back full circle. It's all of the skill sets I developed as a young child that my parents exposed me to that have made me have a lot to contribute to opera in terms of the characterization and in Mm -hmm. terms of what I bring when I interpret a role. I've never thought of singing as from the neck up, even though the voice is up here. Singing for me is a whole body experience. There's always a story to tell, even if you have no words at all. A vocalist has a harmonic story Mm -hmm. to tell. And... I think back to when I started music theory at seven and, you know, was already analyzing counterpoint at 10 that, you know, these things have all very much given me many different layers to my musical understanding and my musical development. I just feel very fortunate to be able to bring anything and everything that I've learned to everything that I do. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, I think, places me in a unique position in that, yeah, I haven't run into any other opera singers doing a musical on the West End and 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 it was very exciting to be that person as it were representing yeah. opera and representing what opera is today. I love it. 
it's great that you're open to that. And, and I think that circles back to, I think, audiences need to be open to that as well. And not just audiences, yeah. but listeners. I know we're talking mainly live opera, but even just seeking out something to listen to. Just be adventurous, maybe. Definitely. You know, put a classical mix on Spotify and yeah. see what piques your fancy, because there might be something there that... And by the way, I'm a classical musician who's grown up with classical music my entire life, and I hear new pieces that I shazam and go, hang on, what is that? You yeah. know, and find a an unusual Grieg piano piece or mm -hmm. something that I think, this is amazing, you know. And, you know, I think it's important to experience both the popular side and the obscure side of classical music. So, you know, Radio 3 and Classic FM are two examples of, yep. if you listen to the channels, they have different spectrums of what types of music they explore. And we need both. We need both of those types of explorations. So you never know. I mean, and I have friends, for example, who took up opera for the first time and then said, Philip Glass is the first thing I heard when I heard opera, and that's what I'm interested in. And yeah. you just think, you know, wow, imagine that there are people around who've never heard Mozart, Handel, Puccini, mm -hmm. Rossini, Verdi, but they've heard Philip Glass, and that's their gateway in. So yeah. there are lots of different ways to come in. The main thing is to be open to just crossing the threshold. That's it. Dip I don't your toe think, in. Yeah, I don't think we want people to sort of be converts. I've never... <laughs> done any of the outreach work that I do in order to force people to opera, but I definitely lay out a bridge and encourage people to walk across and I'll meet, I'll absolutely meet them halfway. I'll meet them three quarters of the way. I'll hold their hand all the way across the bridge if, if, if need Stick be. Stick them in a wheelbarrow and wheel them over. Absolutely. But I mean, there's lots of different ways in and that's, yes. that is the, I think the key thing. And opera is so much more dynamic today than perhaps it ever has been. Sure. Um, and there are lots of different ways through streaming, through iTunes. You can, you know, download an opera on iTunes. Mm -hmm. There's just so many ways to give it a try that yeah. don't require, you know, a massive investment. No, they it's all out there. Just They require an open mind. Yes, though. exactly. Be open-minded and adventurous, I think. Absolutely. Oh, I love it. Oh, thank you, Daniel. Oh, absolutely wonderful to chat to really you. It's really nice to talk to you too, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Well, huge thanks to Danielle Denise for speaking to me there. It was a lovely chat at Glyndebourne. Uh, joining me now in the studio are my colleagues from BBC Music Magazine, Charlotte Smith, Jeremy Pound and Steve Wright. Hi. Hello. 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 Right. So off the back of that, what, what are your perceived barriers to opera? What are the things that you think get in the way? I mean, for me, it's I've always had this aversion to kind of excessive emoting sort of that grabs you by the lapels. <laughs> I prefer a bit more reserve in my music, which is probably the British in me, but I think I've always thought of opera as being sort of Verdi and Puccini. But, you know, there's so much more to it than that. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, that big Italian stuff. You can mm. love Mozart, you can love 20th, 21st century opera. You don't need to love Madame Butterfly to love opera. So I think for me, in the past, it's... It's always been length. It's the thought of the thought of going in duration, yeah, the duration and going in, sitting in for kind of four hours, maybe five hours for some of the really long ones. However, when I have sat in a really long opera like Tristan and Isolde, mm. the time has absolutely flown by, and the length hasn't actually proved a problem at all. So I think it's a it's a psychological thing which actually doesn't kind of bear fruit when you actually go and enjoy it itself. Great, and I think for me that's a similar thing actually, the duration, but it's also the language barrier for me. I think, mm. blimey, am I going to understand this? And I'm sure you can, on a very basic level, understand the emotions of, of a piece of music and all the performances and costumes and sets, but just not necessarily understanding what they're saying. Well, the, strangely enough, that Tristan and Isolde one I mentioned that, that I went to it 
in Germany. Mm. So of course there was there were there were subtitles, but they're but all they're in, in German. German. No, my German's okay, but not brilliant. <laughs> so I, you know, I didn't even have the English words in front of me. But even that, I didn't find too much of a problem. I just enjoyed the spectacle. Mm. Um, I, I knew. I mean, not an awful lot happens in Tristan and Isolde, but I was, you know, I could see enough what was going on. I just, I say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I suppose, if anything, I, I just, some, I have that slight kind of suspension of disbelief thing that I often do with musicals as well. Apologies to any musical fans, but I basically, you know, I'll be following the plot as it's spoken, but then I'm suddenly thinking, hang on a moment, why have you suddenly burst into song? to tell right. me about this betrayal or whatever. Right. And if, you know, if it's really emotionally convincing, I'm I'm swept along with the tide. But there are some times, there have been some times where I think that sudden break from speech to music can feel jarring to me. But I think that's probably a matter of conditioning myself into opera and, and becoming at home in the form probably and it will start to seem more natural. Mm. But I think that we're looking at two kind of, there's two different strands of opera here, that aren't there? Because there, there is the kind of the conventional earlier operas where you do kind of have recitative and then an aria and the aria goes on forever and they express their feelings and they go back to recitative and mm. and that does feel like that whereas a lot of the more modern operas kind of from sort of Janacek Britain onwards mm. you don't get that so much every single moment in the opera actually lends itself to the plot and so you don't have yes. these sort of moments of just standing still and reflecting so it's yes maybe, that's more my happy patch then. Mm. maybe maybe well that leads us nicely on to what have been your your best opera experience or maybe just tell us what your first opera experience was maybe there's one and the same Mine was a, a performance of uh, Puccini's Madame Butterfly at the Tobacco Factory Theatre here in Bristol. Sort of definition of chamber opera, really. A very small stage. Audience was seated in the round. Fairly sort of minimal setting, which you might not think is necessarily what you want in opera. But I don't know. It really brought things to life for me. The, the immediacy, the closeness, the slightly paired back setting. And I think the small scale, neat kind of modernist staging probably fitted the Japanese setting quite well as well. So I think I was more drawn in by that than I would have been by something huge and flamboyant. It's my focus. point. Yeah, it worked for me. <laughs> Jeremy? Well, I can't remember the exact details of it because it was such a long time ago, but it was when I was when I was a sprog. Um, we went up to London to see um, Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel. And it was at Sadler's Wells, I can remember that. Don't ask me who any of the singers were, don't ask me who the conductor was, but I do remember being absolutely riveted by it. And of course, this is an absolutely cracking opera. If you're not moved by Hansel and Gretel, then you're simply, you're almost lost on opera because it is, it is, it's got a great plot, the tunes are beautiful, and then there's that wonderful moment in the middle where they, they're they kind of lifted up by the angels. It's stunning, and it made a real impact right from the beginning. Mm, great. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing a very long time ago The Marriage of Figaro at Covent Garden. Again, can't remember who the soloists were or the conductor, but, you know, it was the first time I'd seen a professional opera production. It was it was pretty standard, but the music was absolutely wonderful. But the only issue, I think, is what we're talking about with length. It was very long, so it's worth bearing that in mind if that's your first experience, mm-hmm. basically. So, yeah. Gosh, well, mine's certainly my most memorable experience, and that was sitting in a quarry in Austria watching the magic flute in the pouring Mm. rain, Um, which obviously wasn't very pleasant, but it was beautifully staged uh, in the open air uh, and made all the more dramatic by the actual thunder and lightning in the actual sky above us. Wow, yeah. Um, It's frightening. Yeah. 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 Talk about layers of atmosphere. (laughs) Well, so for anyone who's listening who doesn't know where to begin, what what do you think each of you are the sort of the places to to start? What would you suggest? What are your recommendations? I mean, I would recommend maybe somebody like Britain, Midsummer Night's Dream or Peter Grimes or Turn of the Screw. I actually played in the orchestral pit 
when I was at the Royal College of Music in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I absolutely loved it. You know, Britain is great because his music's always really accessible, and he's drawing on well-known literary works that are going to be familiar to a lot of the audience. So if you go in with some familiarity, at least with the story, then that's, you know, you might be more open to a new musical experience. Sure, and so, yeah. that's similar to mine, because mm. I, I would suggest going to see something in your own language, so mm-hmm. for us, I'll say it in English, um, and maybe something which is based on a, a contemporary work, whether it's a novel or a, based on a play or a mm-hmm. film. So there's, uh, for example, Jake Heggie's uh, Operas of Dead Man Walking, yeah. uh, and also Awakenings by Tobias Picker. So if you know the film, you might enjoy the opera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good way in. I would probably start people off with something. I think comedy is a great way into most artistic mm. forms, isn't it? Um, laughter is, is a great sort of oxygen and, and, and kind of way into understanding and enjoying it. So I'd probably recommend something like uh, The Marriage of Figaro, where that extra draw of, of comedy, I think, will be a, a great sort of introduction. It's also one of those operas where lots of listeners will probably already know certain pieces of music from it, perhaps without even knowing they know that. So that will feel kind of familiar and accessible and will make the whole terrain feel somewhat more approachable, I think. I'm going to go similarly to what Charlotte was saying about Britain. Janáček as a whole is brilliant at keeping the plot going. There's there's no room for any longers where the mind starts to wander or whatever. The, the action just goes from beginning to end and all the characters are really believable as well. They're just like people you see in real life. They're all flawed. Almost all the characters in Janáček opera seem to be flawed. But th- those are brilliant place to start. Um, however, having said that, I'm actually going to choose for my one standalone opera, which I think is a brilliant place to start, is um, Puccini's Tosca which again, it's not too long. It's a, it's a fairly short opera. It's about an hour and a half, two hours. And it is chock-a-block with um, tunes, which people recognise, lots of drama. And uh, you just, you fall in love with the characters or hate them. So you think, <laughs> you think Tosca herself is amazing. She's, she's just this lovely character. She's got no affectations at all. Cavaradossi is this doomed hero. And then Scarpia just has all the bad traits in the book. Puccini chucks them all into one character. And it's brilliant for just stirring the emotions. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was saying with Danielle, you're bound to know actually more opera than you realise. So like mm. you say something like Tosca, there's bound to be some big hits that mm. people know and they'll yes. go, blimey, I know what that is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much all. It's been a pleasure to chat. Uh, we're going to end actually with a bit of Danielle Denise. Uh, she sings here uh, an aria from Il Re Pastore by Mozart. Uh, this is Lamero Sara Costante. And this was actually her fondest memory choice in uh, Rewind in a, a, a recent-ish issue a couple of years ago. Uh, and this is her singing with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, conducted by Charles McCarris. <laughs> 